So the book of Deuteronomy, going to try and get through the first four chapters, but uh, Deuteronomy, the purpose of this book is Moses is um, going to speak to the nation to make a fresh commitment to follow in the covenant that he has made with him, that they would obey the law and they'd walk in the blessings of that covenant. So this is uh, 40 years after the covenant was first given, and now it's a new generation And he's speaking to them because they are going to be entering into the promised land. Um, So this is given at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering, which would put you around 1406 B.C. So they left Egypt in 1446 B.C. And now it's about 1406 B.C. Um, And there's plenty of evidence for that. Don't let anybody trick you. So God has promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that their descendants would inherit the promised land. Um, They tried to go in. We're going to read about it. They didn't have faith. They doubted. They disbelieved. They rebelled against God. And so they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And everybody that was 20 20 years old and above um, at that time of rebellion um, died in the wilderness, except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. Everybody else died. So this generation is a brand new group of people. And um, they know the stories, of course, right? They, they grew up there um, among those, that generation. And you can feel it as, as we, especially in these four, uh, first four chapters. I mean, uh, you know, Moses is like, don't make the same mistake. Don't blow it. So if um, they fail to obey, um, he's going to talk about, as we get into this book, um, he's going to talk about if you follow the Lord and obey him, you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey him and you rebel, then the very thing you are about to do, and that's displacing unrighteous people from the land, you will be displaced from the, the land because of your unrighteousness. The only difference is they have a promise that if they repent, and they will, that they will be brought back into the land. So this is something we'll dive into more as we we move on. A couple of interesting facts about the book of Deuteronomy. Um, Again, it has a a very similar structure to the ancient documents, um, the Hittite document known as the suzerainty. So it was a monarch, and he was talking to the vassals and saying, this is the relationship we're going to have. And um, so... You, as you go through this, there are six main pieces or, or sections of this contract. Um, so, you know, if you've signed a contract on a house before and you saw that stack of paper, and if you've done that a couple of times, it's like, oh, this again. But it always seems like it gets thicker, not shorter, by the way. But uh, anyway, the, the, it's a, it was a document that was common. And we've, archaeologists have found many of these um, uh, suzerainties, as they're called. And the parts are, uh, there's a preamble. Um, that would probably correlate best with Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 4. There's a historical prologue. So a history of the king's dealings with the vassal. In this context, it would be uh, Deuteronomy 1, 5 through chapter 4, verse 43, uh, Yahweh's dealings with his people. And we're going to read about those dealings. Um, there's some general stipulation. It's a call for wholehearted allegiance to the king, and that is so clear in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 44, through chapter 11, verse 32. Then there's specific stipulations, um, and so that would be chapters 12 through 26. And then chapters 27 and 28, um, it will talk about the blessings and the curses that will be associated for uh, obeying or disobeying the treaty. So um, take some time, read it, compare it, and you're going to see, wow, that's, that's exactly what's going on in this book. Um, it's, actually, it's one of the most quoted books uh, in the New Testament. Did anybody know that? So, I mean, this was like Jesus' favorite book. So, you know, sometimes say, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? And you say, well, you know, I really like, you know, the gospel, or I really like Revelation, or I like Philippians. And, and you know, it would seem like, Jesus really liked the book of Deuteronomy because he quotes from it more than any other book. And, um, and Deuteronomy itself, throughout the New Testament, is one of the top books quoted by the writers. So it's an important book from that standpoint. Um, so how did it get named Deuteronomy? Well, the English title of the book I means um, you know, second law, Deuteronomy. 
Um, so that's not the Hebrew name. The Hebrew uh, name, and if you just look at chapter 1, um, look at chapter 1, verse 1. And I, I'm going to give you the name of the book. The name of the book is, These Are the Words. That's the name of the book. But, but it's interesting. If you go to Genesis, um, Genesis, the Hebrew name is, In the Beginning. And Exodus is, and these are the names. And Leviticus is, and he called. And Numbers is the wilderness or in the desert. So um, the, the Pentateuch, these first five books, were named um, somewhere within the first ten words of the opening of each of those books. So that's the, how the Hebrew um, they got the, you know, were given the names. But Deuteronomy um, came about a little bit differently. In Deuteronomy 17, 18, there's a stipulation that every king should rewrite um, this the copy of this law. Um, and in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, uh, the phrase was translated uh, Deuteronomion. And it means second law. And so you can see how it ended up with that name of Deuteronomy. So um, that's just a little bit of, of, I thought that was kind of interesting and I can spend a lot of time there. Um, and you've got an outline you can take a look at. There's a couple of different ways to outline this. Um, and uh, you have one in that brochure. Uh, another one uh, is a way to do this is his, there's three major speeches that mark the book of Deuteronomy, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1, then in chapter 4, verse 44, and chapter 29, verse 1. So chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 44, and 29, verse 1. So those are kind of the three speeches. So that's another way to, to kind of break it up. We will go through this um, based on how much I think we can get through in that night. That's how we're going to do it. So, uh, but you can just have that framework, that grid as we go through. So let's begin. Chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel on this side of the Jordan in the wilderness and the plain opposite Suf or um, Reed. Or so Reed Sea, Red Sea. It's a, I would love to get into that a little bit, but just if you think of the geography of where they are, they are far from Egypt. And so people say, oh, they, you know, they did not cross through that mighty Red Sea. They crossed, they crossed through the Reed Sea. Um, and it was just, you know, some people would just say inches deep, which creates a problem for uh, the Egyptian army that drowned in a few inches of water. So there's another miracle. It's like God sent all of his angels and held their heads down in puddles. Um, so, I mean, if that's the miracle you want, okay, but it's not what the text says. Um, uh, others would say, no, it was a little deeper than that in that area. But that's way back in Egypt. Um, and so now we're talking about them. They're, they've been out of Egypt for 40 years. They're not, they're not backtracking. So anyway, it's just a, some of you will, be, will remember our study in Exodus. We talked quite a bit about that. So it kind of gives you um, some little geographical markers there. In verse 2 it says, It is 11 days journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. So from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea is an 11 day journey. Now it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spoke to the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him as his commandments to them. After he had killed Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth in Edrai. So some of the things that we're going to be seeing here in the opening chapters is God's going to say, like, look what I have done in your midst. And so we just got two things mentioned right there. We're going to come back to them in more detail. But I've taken out these two kings, and one of these guys is a giant that has a 13-foot bed. We'll read about it. It's, we'll talk a little bit about that. So the idea is like, you're, you're ready for this. It's time to go in. Um, so again, it's 1406 B.C. Um, I mean, right around that time frame. Verse 5. On this side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses began to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, you have dwelt long enough at this mountain. So Mount Sinai, um, down into, I mean, there's, a, there's probably a dozen different places that people have chosen for Mount Sinai. The traditional one um, would be, if you think of the Red Sea and how it has those kind of like two antennas, and you have that landmass that kind of um, is shaped like this. It's kind of down towards the southern part of that tip is where Mount, the traditional site for Mount Sinai is. So if we go with that, that'll give you a little bit of... Uh, 
uh, you know, idea. Look in the back of your Bible if you don't know what I'm talking about. You should have a map that will help you out a little bit. Um, so verse 7, or 6, you've been here long enough. Verse 7, turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites, to all the neighboring places in the plain, and the mountains and in the lowland and in the south and on the seacoast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them and their descendants after them. So it's time. It is time uh, to go. Verse 9, And I spoke to you at that time, saying, I am not able to bear you. So Moses, this is Moses speaking right now. He said, I can't, I can't do this on my own. The Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. May the Lord God of your fathers make you a thousand times more numerous than you are. And bless you as he has promised you. How can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. And you answered me and said, the things which you have told us to do is good. So I took heads of the tribes. Why? So now this is the encounter that he has with Jethro, his father-in-law. And he's, Jethro watches him uh, from morning till evening, hearing all the complaints of this. You know, we know there are 600,000 fighting men. So you have a congregation of millions. And um, somehow Moses thought he could take it all, ha- handle all that. And, and Jethro's like, you're, gonna, you're going to wear yourself out if you do this. You need to appoint men. And he did. He appointed men. And they began to handle these issues. They began to deal with um, the problems that were coming. And if there was a great problem that couldn't be handled, then he said, I'm going to hear those issues that are um, most perplexing, most difficult, that can't be handled by other people. And so um, he took his father-in-law's advice, he found those faithful men, and he appointed them. And that is, a, I think, a, a worthy model for um, you know, the church today, for ministry today, is to raise up godly men and women around you that can help bear the load. So what is the ministry that you're involved in? Maybe you're one that's helping to bear a load, or maybe one day there'll be people that um, you're responsible for, and you're going to look and you're going to say, I can't do this on my own. The answer is not, I quit. The answer is, find faithful people that will do that work. It's the same kind of idea that's communicated there in the early chapters of Acts when the church was growing at such a rapid rate. And there was thousands of people that had come to faith. And there was a dispute that came up among the believing uh, women who were widows. Those that were Hellenistic kind of had a Greek background, but they had faith in Jesus. They were Jewish. And then you had those that were, um, you know, they, had a, they were Jewish, but they, they spoke the Hebrew language and, and so forth. And they felt like there was an unfair allotment of food. And so they said, you've got to come solve this problem, Peter. And he says, no, I don't think so. Find for yourself seven guys that can handle this problem. And so let them be full of the Holy Spirit, of good reputation, and so on. They picked these seven guys. Um, It was the Hellenistic uh, widows that felt like they were being cheated. And so if you look at the names, almost those names, I think all seven of those names um, have like a Hellenistic background. So they chose people that would... um, you know, that would identify with the Hellenistic widows. There's a lot of wisdom. But he says, we got to give ourselves to, to prayer and to the word of God. It's an important issue. It's not that it's unimportant, but we're not going to get involved with things like that. So this is a model that is repeated. Of course, Jesus had his 12. He sent out the 70. Um, and we just need to, we need to, if you're in a place of leadership, you should always be looking to find those um, godly people that can help you and you can uh, push the work down. If you don't do that, you'll wear yourself out and you're going to deal with other problems. So I think what, what often happens is um, a, a pastor or a leader will say, well, I would rather just do it myself so I know it's done right. Well, that's great as long as things don't grow and aren't blessed. But if they grow in number and you keep that same mentality, you will frustrate the people and they will go find a place where they can be ministered to. So in, in doing this, and it can be a very difficult thing to hand off something 
to other people and let them go walk it out and go, go do ministry. But that is exactly what we're told to do. And um, so this is an important principle that he's reciting to them. If you look at verse 19 through 33, um, we see their refusal. Um, so this is, again, going back to the early days, like, uh, you know, when they first left Egypt. In verses 19 through 33, their refusal to enter the land of promise at Kadesh Barnea. So let's read a little bit of this. Um, so we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites. As the Lord our God commanded us, then we came to Kadesh Barnea. And um, I think on the map you should see uh, Kadesh Barnea there. We're going to put a map up in just a moment that will help you find some of these spots. He said, I said to you, you've come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and the cities into which we shall come. The plan pleased me well, so I took 12 of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains. They came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. They also took some fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, it is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, look at this, because the Lord hates us. I mean, listen, we all have had those moments where we felt like maybe God has abandoned us or left us or whatever. And, you know, we have the cross to look at that says, no, I don't think he hates me. I actually think he loves me a whole lot. They had Egypt to look at. They had the deliverance. They had the Passover lamb. We have the lamb of God. They had these things to look at and to see. And yet they're like, well, this is because God hates us. You don't have to raise your hand. Okay. But have you ever felt like God has abandoned you or left you or hated you or didn't care for you or is done with you? That is not who your God is. For God to abandon you would to be unfaithful to who he is. He is faithful. So whatever you're going through, whatever challenge you're going through, um, it may be something, sometimes we bring stuff on ourselves, right? <laughs> the consequences of that. Sometimes people sin against us and we deal with that. And sometimes the Lord's about to bless us and we say, oh, you hate me. Why are you giving me all these difficulties and challenges to walk in? He's about to bless them and they're saying, he hates us. Um, and you can begin to see why the Lord um, did not, uh, he didn't like this. <laughs> um, so keep on reading middle of verse 27. He has brought us up out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. What's that? Anakim are the giants. The big boys, right? It's Goliath. It's, it's these tall individuals. And they are still around. They're still alive um, after the flood. So, um, in Genesis chapter 6, and this is a debatable interpretation, but I'm just going to tell you straight up what I think it is. Um, in, in Genesis chapter 6, um, I'll begin at verse 1. Now it came to pass, this is the days of Noah, when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. And what are the next three words? And also afterward. So who are these guys? Well, 
I mean, there are different opinions. Um, Let me keep reading. It says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were uh, of old men of renown. And then it goes on to talk about the wickedness. And so, uh, one interpretation, and um, I I have no problem with this, is that these were actually uh, uh, fallen angels that were... Um, entering into these relationships. How does that happen? Are there problems? Yeah, there's, there's, there's difficulties and challenges with it. Um, but that we have some information in the New Testament that I believe touches this. 2 Peter 3, verse 4 says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemned them to destruction, making them examples of those who afterward will live ungodly. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For the righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Um, And so it goes on. But in each of those Sodom, um, you know, account, um, and then... Um, it goes it talk, it's talk about sexual sin. Now, whoever these angels were, they did not keep their proper domain, and it happened in the days of Noah, and um, it's in the context of, of sexual sin that it's placed. So this is one of the reasons. One more place, and then we'll move on. See, if you think the Bible's boring, you just haven't really read it, Okay. Fallen angels cohabiting with uh, daughters of men producing giants. And then we read in Jude, only one chapter. I'll read verses 5 and 6. It says, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he has reserved in after everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner uh, to these have given themselves over to sexual immorality. Do you see the connection that it's making? And gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And you can keep on reading. So, I, listen, is this, a, is this an interpretation? Does it have challenges? No, there's some challenges to it. So why would this happen? And I think this is where you can, to me, it just makes perfect sense. If you are Satan and you want to make certain that the prophecy of Genesis chapter 3 never comes to pass, and that is that the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan, one thing you could do is to corrupt the bloodline. And so by these this kind of strange event happening um, that took place. Um, so one of the biggest objections that people say is, well, angels neither marry nor given in marriage. Well, that's how we're going to be when we get to heaven too. doesn't mean that, you know, that we're asexual. Um, it just means that is not going to be something, an activity that you are engaging in. So I don't think you can necessarily conclude from that statement alone that, um, they don't have this ability. So anyway, um, th- this is where I think these guys came from. Um, uh, it also, if the, the interpret- other interpretation is no, this is just um, ungodly people that were uh, around and about and, um, you know, because of the a righteous, unrighteous union of the, the godly daughters of Seth with the unrighteous line of um, uh, Cain. And so because of this, um, that, that's who's being talked about. Yeah, I don't think so. That men of renown, men who were on the, in, you know, around in those days and then also afterward, there's something more going on here than this. Now, you maybe don't like any of those interpretations and you can go you know, do your homework and, and work on it. But as we go through this, I think this is one of the reasons why you're going to see that why God wants total annihilation of this of, as the children of Israel go in to the land. So, so some thoughts to think on. I, you know, they're not like the, the strongest theological point I could ever make, but 
I think those are the reasons why. So, so they have these um, uh, giants in the land and they don't want to go in. So in the days of Moses, they don't want to go in because they don't want to fight the giants. There's big cities with big walls and there's big dudes. And they're like, we don't want to go in and fight. Verse 27 of chapter 1. And you complained in your tents and, and, and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. And then I said to you, do not be terrified or afraid of them. Because the bigger they are, no, it doesn't say that. But, um, but it's true. It just ask David. The Lord your God who goes before you, he will fight for you according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Your dad carried you. Yet for all that you did not believe the Lord your God who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and the cloud by day. It's like God has done so much and you didn't, you didn't believe. Your fathers, they didn't believe. And so they didn't end up going into the promised land. And everybody that was 20 years old and over died except for the two spies that gave a good report of the 12, which was Joshua and Caleb. These two guys get to go in because they are like, no, no, no. This is fine. Our God can do it. Well, in, in verses 34 to 40, um, they hear the rebuke, and they don't like this. Um, and they, are, actually, verses 34 through 40, the Lord tells them, sorry, back that up. 34 through 40, God says, fine, you're not going into the promised land. You're going to wander. Well, when they hear this, they say, okay, we changed our minds. Verse 41, we want to go fight them now. And the Lord said, too late. You've rebelled against me. You have not believed in me. There are consequences. You as a generation are not going to go in. And they said, we're going to go fight them anyway. And so they go to fight them. And as they go in, they get routed. And they are defeated. And what we read here is that they acted presumptuously. Um, and that's um, in verse 43. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. You know, presumption before God is, I think, we're going to do something and you've got to act. And, and it's like, well, listen, he said no, but we'll just go in. And when we get in this mess, then he's going to actually have to bail us out. And so this is the presumption of it. They're presuming upon um, God and what he's done, but they're not listening to his word and what he's going to do. And that is, he's going to let them all wander for 40 years and die. And they, they, they step forward. Satan tries the same trick with Jesus, doesn't he? He says, why don't you jump off the pinnacle of the temple? And then angels are going to come sweeping down out of heaven. And they're going to catch you right before you hit the ground. And, you know, everybody in Jerusalem is going to see this amazing miracle that takes place. It's, this is going to be beautiful. And he says, no, you shouldn't tempt the Lord your God. We're not, I'm not going to do this. And so we have to be very careful that we are led by the Holy Spirit, that we're using the word of God. And, um, and probably, you know, the word of God is written down. So this is the easiest part of reading and understanding the mind and the will of God. And then the Holy Spirit does lead us. Read the book of Acts. We see how he leads. And you need to listen and you need to hear. And you know, I think there are times where people just say, well, I'm just going to do this thing and God's got to step in and help out. Not if he's not leading you to do that. He doesn't. And so we, we need to hear the voice of the Lord. And you're like, well, then if that's the case, I'm never going to take a step of faith. No, don't do that either. Because <laughs> that's a problem as well in this text, isn't it? I mean, there, there, you got some bookends of tension, you know, that create some tensions. It's like, step out and go fight them. They'll fall. The cities will come down. Well, yeah, but that's scary. Don't worry about it. I, I've got you. I'm going to fight for you. No, we're not going to go. 
And so we, they can't get past the faith. And then when they, you know, um, the fear of falling, they don't have the faith for this. Then when God says you can't go, they act presumptuous. And you have this other end of it. And there's, there is a tension in life in following the Lord between hearing the voice of the Lord and knowing what he's calling us to do and then stepping out into it and not being afraid. And if you want to walk by faith and not have that tension, you're not going to find it. So the Lord leads us and he guides us. He loves to put us in circumstances where he's got to show up and fight for us. Where he's got to lead and open the way. And so I encourage you to, to learn and to glean. And I myself am wanting to learn and to glean uh, these lessons as well. All right, so chapter 2 um, it's 40 years after this failure at Kadesh Barnea. Um, it is called rebellion. It's not called a lapse of faith. It's called a rebellion. I mean, it wasn't a lapse of faith. Yeah, they didn't believe. But I think we can hear that and think, oh, well, that's just, you know, everybody's got a little troubles. God saw this as rebellion. When God leads and guides, we go. Um, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4 um, the opportunity to go back into the land. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness of the way of the Red Sea, as the Lord spoke to me, and we skirted the mountain, Mount Seir for many days. And the Lord spoke to me, saying, You have skirted this mountain long enough. Turn northward. And command the people, saying, You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give any of their land, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Can I just pause for a second? This word footstep. Um, you know, when you go in the central part of Israel, they are finding all of these like um, stone walls or these uh, encampments. Um, throughout the, the kind of the, the, the hill section of Israel. And um, I forget, I think they have like found like maybe six of these. They're large, they're huge. And they're all in the shape of a footprint, like a hang tin kind of a footprint, if you remember that, some of you will. And they found these encampments and they're in the shape of a footprint. Which I, to me, I just got to laugh at this. And we don't really know exactly why, but the best belief, and these are sites where Israel showed up and won victories. And so, I mean, they've, these are archaeological finds. are like, we don't know what these are. But it's like, well, but you can see here how God refers to inheriting um, land and having land as a footstep. And so it seems so likely, the most reasonable explanation is, as they went in, they built these encampments in the shape of a footstep and said, it's ours. Wherever our foot has gone in. And so there's these, these locations um, now, people will say, you know, some people will even say Israel never was in the land. And yet, I just got to laugh because there's these massive footprints all over the land that says, no, we were here. So just a little side, side issue. You can look it up and have some fun with that. But it says, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau, right? So this is um, the descendants of Esau is in Edom. And this is the brother of Jacob, twin brother of Jacob. You shall buy food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you've lacked nothing. And when we passed beyond, when we passed beyond our brethren, the descendants of Esau, who dwell in Seir, away from the road of the plain, Away from Elath and Ezion Geber, we turned and passed by the way of the wilderness. So, if you could put up that map um, there, and so you can you maybe follow that blue line. So, um, kind of on the, the left hand side, going to the top, you can see a blue line and then three arrows that go out, and that's representing where the spies were. And if you kind of come back down, that brings you to Kadesh Barnea. Um, can you guys see this? Or do I, yeah, you can see it, okay. And then, then you see that they, um, they kind of make their way over towards Edom. And then, then all of a sudden, the, that blue line goes all the way down to the Red Sea. Um, and it's um, Ezion Geber, it's Elath, 
Um, today is called Elot. Uh, if any of you go to us uh, to Israel with us, we're going to go there. We're going to go to that some of these sites we're talking about here, and then then it loops back up around because. Um, Edom said, you can't come through our land. So you can see they came right up to Edom, kind of the middle of the map. They came right to it. Like, no, you can't come here. You can't come into our land. They wanted to just cut across and pass by, but they said no. So then they went, I mean, they're walking this too, okay? They walked all the way down to the Red Sea, to Elath and um, Ezion-Geber, and then they loop back up and they come up to the north um, on the, the, the highway that's called the way of the wilderness. Um, that's that, where that blue line is. There's also another highway that's kind of to the west um, that's called the King's Highway. And that goes right through Edom, and they didn't even use that. So they went all the way around. It's just a, I mean, they, they get angry about this, actually. When you read in Numbers, and we did, they weren't happy about that, those extra miles. So he's just, he's saying, hey, you guys know what we've done. You know how we've, We've walked this. And um, so, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab nor contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land as a possession, because I have given R to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So, um, Moab was a descendant of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Verse 10. The Emim had dwelt there in times past, a people as great and numerous and tall as the Anakim. Okay, so now here's another group of people that are giants in the land. Um, but the Moabites defeated them. They were also regarded as giants like the Anakim, but the Moabites called them the Amim. The Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from, from before them. So you might like, oh man, what is all this detail? It's significant. Think, just... Think for a second. All these details about geographical journeys and travel and, you know, victories that they had, victories that other nations had. Why is that important? Because 40 years earlier, they weren't willing to go in because they were afraid they couldn't have, what? Victory. So what Moses is doing, he's like, don't make this mistake again. I mean, um, Edom had victory over these guys. Moab had victory over them, some giants, okay? So don't be afraid. Let's not make this mistake again. Um, so the, uh, verse 12, the, uh, Esau, the Edomites dispossessed the Horites, um, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave them. Now rise and cross over the valley of Zered. So we crossed over the valley of Zered. So, um, where is that? So if you kind of go up on this map, um, if you're on the, the right side of this map, the east side, and you go up north, you can see a little white box. That, that's about the area that they've come up to um, at verse 13. And the time we took to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the valley of Zered was 38 years, until all the generation of men of war was consumed from the midst of the camp, just as the Lord has sworn to them. So by the time they got to Zared, everybody had died. For indeed, the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the midst of the camp until they were consumed. So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people, verse 17, that the Lord spoke to me saying, this day you are to cross at Ar, at the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land of the people of Ammon as a possession because I have given it to the descendants of Lot. So again, Lot has two sons and a very freaky story um, that you can go read in Genesis on your own. But the Lord acknowledges them. Now verse 20. That was also regarded as the land of giants. Giants formerly dwelt there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzumim. So again, they were afraid of the giants 40 years earlier. Now he's like, hey, these other, other places, you know, the Moabites, the Ammonites, they fought giants and they won. Okay, so he's trying to build their faith. 
Verse 21, as a people as great and numerous as the Anakim, but the Lord destroyed them before them, and they dispossessed them and dwelt in their place, just as he has done for the descendants of Esau, who dwelt in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They dispossessed them and dwelt in their place even to this day. And the Avim, who dwelt in villages as far as Gaza, and the Kaphtorim, who came from Kaphtor, destroyed them and dwelt in their place. Rise, take your journey and cross over the river Arnon. Look, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, the king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to possess it and engage him in battle. So it's like, now we're ready to fight. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the nations under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Can you think of one lady who had this in her heart? Anybody? Who, who's somebody in scripture that had this fear and dread in their heart? Rahab, right. In the city of Jericho that had these really tall walls. They're like, we're, we're, we're scared to death. So the Lord's like, I'm going to take care of you. Verse 26 um, talks about the defeat of um, uh, Sihon, king of Heshbon. This becomes a lot of the land that um, the two and a half tribes are going to inherit um, on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, let's go to um, verse 36. It says, From Aror, which is on the bank of the river of Arnon, from the city that is in the ravine as far as Gilead, there was not one city too strong for us. The Lord our God delivered all to us. Only you did not go near the land of the people of Ammon anywhere along the river Jabbok or to the cities of the mountains or wherever the Lord your God had forbidden us. He's like, listen, we've already started this. We're already having this amazing, great victory. We should not be afraid. Just trying to build their faith, trying to encourage them so that they will, they will stand strong. So into chapter 3, we get a little more detail about a specific giant. Um, and his name is Og. So let's read. Then we turned and went up the road to Bashan. And, and Og, king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. And the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have delivered him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon. So the Lord, our God, also delivered into our hands Og, king of Bashan, with all his people, and we attacked him until he had no survivors remaining. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we did not take from them, 60 cities, all the region of Argob, of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And these cities were fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides a great many rural towns. And we utterly destroyed them, as we did to Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroyed, destroying the men, women, and children of every city. I mean, it goes on to just say we took their spoils and so forth. Move down to verse 11. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnant of the giants. And did indeed his bedstead was an iron bedstead. It's, is it not in Rabbah of the people of Ammon? Nine cubits, 13 feet, and four cubits, six feet, according to the standard cubit. That's a big bed. Queen bed is five feet wide and about six and a half feet long. So his bed was as wide as a queen size bed, but about twice as long. This was a big dude. This is a very big guy, and this is one of the giants. Um, we know, we have a, a, the, the account um, of when David killed Goliath, um, that he was like nearly nine feet tall, nine feet and three quarters, right? I mean, um, you know, feet tall. He Nearly 10 feet. So there's a lot of uh, this information. They have found the city that um, Goliath lived in. They have found pottery with Goliath's name on it. There's also something interesting that they found in Monash, which is over in the land of Israel. And you can, you can do a Google search, and you can find this on your own. But just, just type in um, armor and spear 
of giants at Monash, and you'll, you'll see it. It's legitimate, okay? There's a lot of stuff on giants out there that is not legitimate, all right? It's just like, if it looks super-duper freaky, yeah, it's probably not real. Just don't, don't bother. But what they found in this place um, is they found this spearhead that's like about, I mean, it's about this. So it gives you the dimensions. And um, the, the archaeologists that found it are not Bible believers. And they said this is a, a perfect um, example of the way spears were made. Um, it, it shows that it was used. There, there was wear on it. Um, and they, they found more than one, but they, they found this one that really stands out size-wise. And says, and you know, um, but clearly this is too large for any normal man to have used. So this was, must have been made just for decoration or something. Unless you're a giant. Unless you're Og or you're Goliath. And, um, and the one that they found, I believe, I believe um, Goliath was like 15 pounds. Um, the one that they found was like seven and a half pounds. So this is, this is big. They also found a bunch of armor. Uh, and they found so much armor, they said, we don't know how to make sense of this. This is too much armor for a normal-sized man. We don't know why there's so much of this. So th- there's archaeological evidence that, um, that kind of helps us to, to see that, uh, you know, there are what the Bible talked about. There were people actually just like that. So again, the whole point of what we're reading and why Moses is taking the time to do this is like, God is leading you to go do something. Have faith. Your fathers didn't have faith for it, but you have faith for it. Look at what's already happened. Remember Egypt, okay? But also remember how he's led you through the wilderness. Remember how he gave you victory. Yeah, he made you go around these places and he didn't want you to touch certain nations. But those nations had dispossessed giants. They had victory over other people. And, and you know, you even, we even had a victory over Og, right? The guy with the 13-foot bed. We were victorious over there. So let's, and it was a big city with high walls up into heaven. So let's not allow those things to freak us out anymore. Let's go in and let's take what is ours. And, and that is the message that's being communicated here. Now, as you go to verse 23 of chapter 3, down to verse 29, you read of how Moses was not allowed to come into the promised land. So let's read a little bit. He says, Then I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? I pray, let me cross over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, those pleasant mountains and Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me on your account and would not listen to me. So the Lord said to me, enough of that. Have you ever said that to somebody? That's enough. I don't want to hear any more. We're done talking about this. Well, the Lord felt that way. He says, speak no more of this matter. uh, Speak no more to me of this matter. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift your eyes toward the west, the north, the south, and the east. Behold it with your eyes, for you shall not cross over this Jordan. You can see it, but you're not going to touch it. And so he went up and he was able to uh, take a look at the land that they were going to come into. So we stayed in the valley opposite Beth Peor. So the, the point is, you guys are going to go in the land. I don't get to go in the land because I messed up. And it, it's meant to be instructive. It's meant to warn. It's like, don't you mess up. God didn't let me go in. Now you're about to go in. Don't mess up. So look at chapter 4. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord your God, your father's, Uh, which God of your fathers has given you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. So he says, I messed up, but you got to make certain you completely obey. And we're about to go into a a reciting of the law here. Um, He says, you got to completely obey that. He's going to warn them against idolatry and all the rest. So, but he says, don't take from the word, And don't add to the word. This is something that is an important exhortation. It's actually found in the book of Revelation as well. 
Why? Because these words are not men's words alone. They are men that have been, been inspired of God, moved along by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Holy Spirit, as they wrote, to give us the mind and the heart and the revelation of God. And for Israel, they had the Old Testament that told them how to conduct themselves under that Old Covenant, the, the Mosaic Covenant. And he says, don't take away from it. And all around us, we see people taking and changing the word of God to accommodate their sinful passions. And this is almost always where it goes. I'm not going to say all the time, but it's almost always where it goes. Is I don't believe in the, the word of God says this, so I'm going to change it. I don't think it means this. Well, it's meant that for 6,000 years. People have thought this, or 2,000 years, whatever the time in which we're, we're reading. But yet, now today, you have decided that it doesn't mean that. Does that not feel arrogant to you? <laughs> that you today... Because you have Google, have figured out that God's word is wrong? And you're going to take away from it and you're going to add to it? Well, I just feel. Well, you, your feelings are wrong. Have you ever had bad feelings that weren't right? Did you ever think something that you found out later wasn't true? And if you say, no, you have not been married. That's the answer to that. Get married, and then you'll know what I'm saying is true. All, all of us have made assumptions about things only to find out that we are wrong. And we say like, oh, what, 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 how do we finish that sentence? Oh, I didn't know that. You thought that, but you didn't know the full context. And so people are coming to the Bible today. People at, you know, seminarians and professors and pastors and, and, and many others and, and they're looking and they're saying the word of God doesn't mean this. And it's so much of this is centering around issues of marriage and sexuality and, um, and uh, gender identity. It's like, well, it doesn't mean this. But it's always meant that. It's always meant that. And so now suddenly you today, you're 35 years old and you figured out that for 6,000 years or 2,000 years, everybody's got it wrong. And please tell me, how did you figure this out? What, what is the basis by which you came to this conclusion? Well, I just feel. Oh, okay. You just feel. So that's, is that the basis by which we make decisions for how we're going to conduct ourselves? And sadly, the answer for them will say, well, yeah. We live in a postmodern society. We live at a time where there's no moral absolutes. There's no absolutes. And they're absolutely positive that there are no moral absolutes. And they cannot see the contradiction of their own philosophy. Try telling them that they're wrong. But of course, this is the day. Now there's been a switch to, so now, okay, well, we believe that they're absolute truths, but it's got to come from people who, um, you know, are, um, it gets into critical theory, and, you know, so it, it can't come from anything that would be an established system. And a lot of us say, you know, like, uh, you know, white men in America. Okay, let's just set that aside. Because they will quickly go past that. Read the books. Don't read the books, actually. But read the books. And you will find out with what they say is that it's the church and mission work that is at the top of the heap of what is wrong in society. And then, then they'll work their way down. And um, then other people who have... These, you know, whether it's a handicap or you are, um, you know, of a minority race, then, then you, can, you have more voice to say. And so what you end up finding is that, well, if I am a person that wants to have more to say, because they, they believe the idea is these people, these are the ones that can really speak now because, you know, previous uh, people described in that way have got it wrong. Now, now that they can speak. But they're not using the word of God. I'm okay if it's somebody is going to come in and step into a situation using the word of God to point out the mistakes that have happened. I'm, I'm okay with that all day long. But if we're not going to use the word of God to do that, and it's just going to be that person's experience. So we've gone from this idea that there's no um, you know, absolute truth to the idea that yeah, there is truth, but it's going to be found in a person. And the person who has the most credibility to speak is the homosexual or the lesbian or the transgender. 
And, and this, is, this is what we see going on in our day. Now, some of you are like, what is he talking? I promise you. You, you, you listen to news and you will, you will see this unfold before your very eyes. And, and so the word of God is being kicked out and pushed out. And it's on the basis of other people's experiences. It's not, you know, it, it's, it has to do with the revelation of God, not a person's human experience. Because experience can change. Experience can be wrong. And so it's not my experience that's going to establish truth. It's the word of God that establishes truth. So I don't allow things to be added to or taken away. There was, in the 80s, a group of people that got together and they wanted to decide, as they read through the Gospels, what things were really true of what Jesus said. And they, they put it in four categories, all the way from he absolutely did not say that, all the way to he absolutely did say this. And a bunch of guys got together. Uh, men and women, and they uh, began to uh, vote on what part of the Bible they believed to be true. And, um, you know, again, the, the arrogance of this is like, well, listen, if you can take this holy book and you can tell me that there are parts of this that are not true and there are parts that are true, and you have figured it out, then you have just placed yourself above the word of God. Can you, does that make sense? Because I think it's so important that you see that because, well, if I can look at the word of God and I can determine what part's true and what part's not, then you're above the revelation we received. So forget the Bible. Can I just follow you around for the rest of my life? Because you must clearly have the answers for all things. How's your marriage, by the way? What's the happiness and peace like in your life? What's the morality like in your life? Because I'm sure you're just hitting it out of the park all day long, every day. Far beyond anything that we would find in the Word of God, because you're above that. And, and, and somehow we seem to just, we bite on this. But all the way back in Deuteronomy, it's like, don't allow the Word of God to be taken from or added to. So the bottom line is this. What does it say? What, does, what do the Scriptures say? And, and I hope your conclusion is, it doesn't matter what my experience has been or anybody else's experience or whatever criticisms. If I read the Bible and it says that I am to walk this way or to that way, I'm to love like this, I am to um, have nothing to do with uh, this situation, that activity, that's like conversation over. Is that, is that how you guys function in your life? I hope so. Because that is what you need to do. And you will, when you do that, you're, you're, what you're doing is saying, I believe your word is true. I'm not going to take away from it and say, oh, I don't have to obey that one. And I'm not going to add to it and say, oh, we can now do this. I'm just going to let God's word speak because we have a revelation that has come to us. So important. Don't tamper with the text. That's what Moses is saying there in chapter 4. Now, to the end, um, down from chapter, uh, from chapter 4, um, Verse 3, he begins to talk about the sin of Baal Peor. And this is where the uh, prostitutes came down. They were worshiping Baal, and they seduced the men of Israel. They fell into sexual idolatry, and there was severe consequences for those who did that. And they were put to death. And um, in verses 6 through 8, um, we read that God wants them to become notable as, as a people. Look at verse 6. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord, as Yahweh our God is to us? For whatever reason, we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in this law, which I set before you this day? So it's like you have given such a blessing and be a witness. And this is exactly what the Lord has called us to do. is that we walk in the truth of the scripture and people get to observe our lives and they see the light of our life. And they're like, what, tell me about this peace. Tell me about this joy. Tell me about this hope that is in your life. Your life is different. Why is it? And um, we're able to then give glory to the, to the Lord and then point them back to 
the wisdom you've been walking in. It's not because you're so wise. You just know where to go get the wisdom. And it's from the word of God. Um, Verses 15 through 24. um, The commandment is that they are to worship Yahweh only. They weren't to worship idols. They weren't to worship the stars. Verses 15 through 19. Um, But Israel was chosen to be God's special object of love. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as you are this day. So what's this? This is giving them motivation for worshiping only the Lord. What's the motivation? God loves you. God chose you. God rescued you. That's why you want to obey him. That's why you want to be obedient to him. And so verse 24 goes on to say of the Lord and his desire for us to walk this way. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It amazes me how many people get tripped up by the idea that God is jealous. Well, let me tell you something. I am jealous for my wife. And I, I don't want her, and I have every confidence that she is faithful, but I, I'm jealous for her. And she is jealous for me. And God is jealous for you. Don't go after anyone else. He wants you completely and totally for himself. And, and if you find, well, I don't know if I like that. Well, I mean, how would it sound if you said to your spouse, Well, you know, yeah, I totally love you and I want you to love me completely. And well, do you want me to be like completely faithful to you? Well, I mean, you don't like mostly faithful to me. Mostly faithful to you. Why would you not want me to be completely faithful to you? See, immediately you can see the problem there. It's like, well, there's something lacking in the love that's going towards the person that you don't care if they're faithful. So he says, "I, I want all of you. I want every part of you, your heart, your soul, your mind. I want it all, all your strength. It's all mine. This is how the Lord has called us to follow him. And this is what he's telling the nation of Israel. Verses 25 to 31, Moses prophesies about their future disobedience. I talked about that in the opening. And God's future mercy. And then in verses 32 through 40, um, Israel, again, God's, Favor and kindness is shown towards them. So let's read a little bit of this. We're wrapping it up. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and live? Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of another nation? By trials, by signs, by wonders, by war, by mighty hand and outstretched arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might instruct you On earth he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. Verse 37, and because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in and to give you their land as an inheritance as it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on earth beneath there is no other. You shall therefore, because of all of what I just said, keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you. And then you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for all time. There's a whole lot can be said in that last phrase. I'm not going to get into that for all time. But the point that I want us to see, the overarching point that's being made here, is God has shown them great kindness and favor, and so he calls them to walk in obedience. But look at this verse with me. It's Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 13. It's going to be up on the screen. There it is. But you might want to look, turn to this. It says, therefore, remember that you, 
once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants and promise, having no hope without God and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus or the blood of Christ. What's that? It's ours too. It's ours. We have a place with God. Think about this. He has hung on the cross. Your sin was placed on him. He died and he rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and he has sent his spirit down. His spirit, his presence dwells with you. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he dwells within you. The pillar of fire by, by night and the cloud by day is pretty cool. But the presence of God dwelling within you is way cooler. The new covenant goes far beyond what the old covenant did. And so what's the takeaway? I walk with my God and I obey him because he has been so kind and so good and so generous to me. I respond to him out of love. It closes in 41 through 43 in establishing cities of refuge, which we took a lot of time to talk about in our previous study in Numbers. Let's pray together. Worship team, you can stay where you are. But I want us just to, um, I want us to respond to the Lord. The mighty working of God, our response is to believe and obey. Lord, you have shown us so much love and so much kindness, and we thank you for it. I ask, Lord Jesus, that you will move in our hearts and in our lives right now. And if we are not taking and embracing the word and obeying it, but we've decided to give ourselves a pass or allow a, a, a privilege that's not contained in your word, I pray we would repent of it right now. That, Lord, our hearts and our minds would be changed to obey you because you love us, because you redeemed us, because you hung on the cross. Oh, Lord, you, you did a, a great and mighty deliverance for, for Israel. The Passover lamb preserved them from death. And that's amazing. But Lord, more amazing than that, you are our lamb. How can we not but respond in obedience and love? If you wanted that from Israel, after what you had done for them, how much more? you want us to walk in obedience to you after what you've done for us through your son. So Lord, we humble ourselves before you. We're glad that you're jealous for us and that you don't want us to go after anything or anyone else. That you would care that much about us. Lord, we're grateful. Help us to be people of faith that step out into those things that you call us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.